and welcome to the Bodybuilding Dietitians Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today on what is now our 59th episode. And as always, you are joined by your hosts, Tiara and Jack. Now, before we get into today's Q&A episode, we would like to put out a quick reminder that if you do enjoy these podcast episodes, please feel free to tell your family and friends about them, take a screenshot, post it to your Instagram stories, tag Jack, tag myself, tag the bodybuilding dietitians. And if you are interested in getting in contact with us regarding coaching, you can always inquire through our website, which is www.thebodybuildingdietitians.com. And you can also find that link in the show notes below or in any of our Instagram bios. And you know, if you do want to see us in video format, you can always find us on YouTube. So without further ado, we do have a pretty exciting Q&A episode lined up for you today. So Jack, fire away. What is the first question? So the first question of the day is, how do you determine how many carbs to consume on peak week? So this is a very important question, especially if you're yeah, doing a front load or a back load. And I would hope that most people, or most males at least, are carving up on peak week because that's obviously very important to uh, come in as full as possible and show off your muscularity and conditioning. Of course, peak week is just peak week. It's not anything magical. Sure, it will make you look better, but if the work hasn't been done beforehand, then you're still not gonna look best on stage. So how do you determine how many carbs to eat though? So essentially this will, number will be established in the whole prep itself leading up to peak week. So what we do with our clients is uh, depending on the individual, we establish high days for them. This might start anywhere from like 10 weeks out or throughout the whole prep. Again, if someone's a bit leaner, then it would probably start slightly further out from uh, the end goal. And basically, uh, we range anywhere from one to three high days a week, again, depending on the individual. And these high days will essentially determine uh, their peak week numbers because if, if uh, they respond to those high day numbers very well, so they, they look very full, they don't look spilled over, they don't look too flat, then we can continuously manipulate these numbers, especially if we do trial peak weeks, and that'll basically determine uh, the numbers for peak week. And yeah, anything to add, Tierra? Not much, to be honest. You know, I agree with everything that you've said, and I do think that it's really important to emphasize that, you know, you are giving yourself enough time in a comp prep to allow for, you know, adding in higher carbohydrate days and, you know, doing practice trial peak weeks so that you can see how your body responds to different amounts of carbohydrates at different times throughout the week so that you can ultimately be prepared to bring your absolute best physique on show day. But, you know, if we were to give just some general numbers and guidelines, interestingly enough, you know, in the most recent mass article that was just released this January, Eric Helms actually did a review of a study that was looking at bodybuilders and their peaking strategies and how many carbohydrates they loaded in the day or the days before their competition and then how that determined you know their muscular girths and essentially how they placed and essentially what they found in that study was that bodybuilders who loaded between 8 to 12 grams 
per kilogram of body weight of carbohydrates in the days before their competition. So whether that was strictly just the day before or maybe in the two days before or the day before and uh, show day, they were actually more successful than the bodybuilders who only loaded five grams per kilogram of body weight of carbohydrates. So for example, let's say that you had an 80 kilogram uh, bodybuilder, right? If they were to only load five grams per kilogram of body weight of carbohydrates, that would only be 400 grams of carbohydrates, which may sound like a lot, but to be honest, to fully saturate muscle glycogen stores, you're gonna need a hell of a lot more than just 400 grams of carbohydrates if you are an 80 kilogram male, or even if you are a male or a female that is substantially less weight than that. So for example, if you were going off the eight to 12 grams per kilogram of body weight in carbohydrates to load up and carb up, you'd probably need somewhere between 640 to 960 grams of carbohydrates if you were an 80 kilogram individual. And again, this doesn't have to be on the day, the one day before show day. So you don't necessarily need to eat a thousand grams of carbohydrates on the Friday before your Saturday show. You know, you could potentially do a backload somewhere. You could split that up between, you know, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, or you could just go Thursday and Friday. But to be honest, that's when it really pays off to have those higher carbohydrate days, you know, implemented on a regular weekly basis in the weeks leading up to your show so that your body is used to that influx of carbohydrates and you can expect to know how you're going to look and how you respond to those carbohydrates. So yeah, it's, uh, it's really about being prepared in advance and finding out what your body, you know, responds best to. And man, that's when it really pays off to pay very close attention to how your physique is looking and taking regular progress photos and regularly checking in with your coach so that, you know, when you nail it, you can say, okay, this is exactly what we're going to do. Yeah, and it really will depend on the individual as well. So there'll be heavier individuals who will require less carbs in order to appear full compared to uh, lighter bodybuilders as well. So I've experienced that firsthand with myself. And the other factor as well is whether you do a front load or a back load. So a front load being uh, consuming more carbohydrates towards the start of the week and then maintaining, as opposed to the back load where you start very flat and uh, basically establish fullness uh, right before show day, as Tierra mentioned. Mm -hmm. But I guess what we can say is, bottom line, just make sure you eat some form of carbohydrate before your show, please. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to show up flat or dehydrated, do you? No, please, not at all. So we'll move on to the next question, and this one states, is it normal that weight training has any effects on blood test results? If yes, which ones, creatinine, etc. So this is a fantastic question. And the short answer is yes, exercising is certainly going to have an acute influence on your bloods. So for example, if you were to do a morning workout and then you were going to have your bloods tested afterwards, that would actually result in most likely a false positive test for a lot of your blood parameters. And by false positive, I mean that the test is going to wrongly indicate that 
a particular condition is present. So when we are exercising, it certainly does, you know, put the body through a lot of stress. And there's a lot of changes that occur in the body, especially there's a lot of changes that occur in blood flow and the cardiovascular system. So when we are at rest and we're, you know, predominantly in our parasympathetic nervous system, we have more rest and digest. So a lot more of our blood is going to our gastrointestinal system. A lot more of our blood is going to our kidneys. But when we're exercising, that blood is redirected away from the gastrointestinal system and the kidneys rather to the skin, the exercising muscles, the heart itself. So, uh, so there's a lot of changes in the body when you are exercising and this can directly influence your blood parameters. So just as an example, you know, there's a heck of a lot of things that are going to change in your bloods straight after you exercise, but just a few examples would certainly be your liver enzymes. So things like ALT, AST, you're going to have an increase in creatinine just because when you're exercising, you are causing a little bit of muscular damage and you are releasing more creatinine into the blood. This is going to be highly individual depending on the duration of exercise, you know, the meal that you had before your exercise, whether or not you're a diabetic or not, but following exercise, blood glucose levels can actually be higher because when we do initiate exercise, you know, we do have a release of glucocorticoids from the adrenal cortex. So prime example of one would be cortisol and cortisol's, you know, one of its main roles is to raise blood glucose levels so that we have an increase in blood glucose so that, you know, we have energy to perform that exercise. But at the same time, you know, if you are exercising and perhaps you didn't have a very high carbohydrate meal to begin with, or perhaps liver glycogen is quite depleted, then blood glucose levels could actually be lower following exercise. Because as we know, when we exercise, our exercising muscles take up glucose from the bloodstream into the muscles to perform cellular work. So, you know, we are more sensitive to glucose uptake. So that could potentially lead to a decrease in blood glucose levels following your exercise bout. And, you know, after exercise, you are going to have a change in electrolytes too. So your things like sodium, potassium, calcium, magnesium, these can either increase or decrease again, depending on your environment, the duration of exercise, you know, the levels of those to begin with. So yeah, a heck of a lot of things can change. But the main thing is, is that if you were to have a blood test straight after you went to the gym or straight after you went for a run, that's just not going to be an accurate representation of your actual blood test results if you were in a fasted and relaxed state. Yeah, and the other side of the coin in this instance is also nutrition. So although this wasn't part of the question, we all know that nutrition plays a huge role in your blood test results and influence it even more than exercise. So we have your fatty acids, whether it's your total cholesterol, HDL, LDL. We have all of your micronutrients if you get that tested in your blood test. We have your fasting glucose as well. Even your testosterone will be influenced whether you do it fasted or not. So yeah, we all, yeah, nutrition does play a considerable role. Mm-hmm. 
So what would be your recommendations for someone if they were to get a blood test, but you know, they didn't want a false positive result? Well, a little bit outside of our scope, I think in this instance, but probably not exercising. If you really want a proper blood test result, then maybe even two to three days off training as well as a fasted reading. So early in the morning after fasting the night, preferably not like in the afternoon after having breakfast. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, potentially maybe you could even just have a rest day and then the next day if you went to the doctors, get your blood test result fasted. I can't emphasize enough what Jack said. You need to get it fasted. And we certainly witnessed this in the hospital when we were on prac during our master's placement because, you know, early mornings at the hospital, before the uh, the lady goes around with the breakfast, the actual pathology lady will go around and she will collect all of the patient's fasted morning blood. So yeah, they get their blood taken before they get their toast and eggs. <laughs> Whether or not they'll even eat their toast and eggs. <laughs> but they're taking their blood regardless. <laughs> so we'll move on to the next question. So this question says, how often do you get on the scales? Weekly? Daily? Why? <laughs> Why, Jack? <laughs> so Tiara and I both get on the scales, not together, but separately. <laughs> Whoa, we would be heavy. <laughs> but we both get on every single morning. And the reason why is the more data we collect, uh, the more accurate it's going to be because, yeah, we collect it every day for the week. Our sheets that we put our weight into divide that by seven for each day of the week and it presents us with an average. So there will be daily fluctuations in body weight, whether that's due to not going to the toilet as much, having more carbohydrates that day, being more hydrated or dehydrated, even whether it's a rest day versus a training day and how your nutrition differs on those days, especially for people who do higher fat rest days and lower carbohydrate, that's gonna affect your weight quite drastically. So the more data we collect throughout the week, um, the better average we get at the end. And the other aspect as to why is it's so easy and why not? So <laughs> like if it's so easy to do, it literally takes two seconds, then um, it provides valuable data that's so easy and free. Yeah, I completely agree. You know, the more data, the merrier. And uh, I always try to um, emphasize with my clients that, you know, you shouldn't fear the scale. You shouldn't fear that number, whatever it reads you each day, because it really is just a number, it really is just a piece of data, and it is very valuable to have, you know, in the entire context of seeing how your body composition is changing regardless of your goals. So yeah, taking that weekly average is so important, and you certainly can start to notice like weekly trends. So for example, myself, if I am running five lower carbohydrate days and two higher carbohydrate days, then I can notice week to week those daily trends. So I always know that I'm going to get my lowest weigh-in generally on a Thursday morning because that's going to be following on from five lower carbohydrate days. And then I'm generally going to have my highest weigh-in of the week on my Saturday morning because that's gonna be following on from my two high carbohydrate days. So I'm gonna have a lot more glycogen stored with me. So it's so important to track those trends so that you know what to expect. And especially with my female clients, you know, when they're on their period, 
I always get them to track that data and in our spreadsheets we'll actually color code it in a different color because it's very common for a female, you know, once she goes on her period for her weight to spike up you know, anywhere between 500 grams to one kilogram. And if we can track that over time and we can expect it to happen generally every single month, you know, we can record that data and we can be like, oh, okay, look, last time this happened to your weight, you got your period the next day. So it just takes the guessing out of it. You know, you can grasp a greater picture of what's really going on, but Man, I can't emphasize enough that the only time of the day that you should weigh yourself is first thing in the morning, after you go pee, before you eat or drink anything. Like, don't step on the scale at any other time during the day because honestly, that number means nothing, okay? Jack, I remember this one time I was working at UQ Sport and like, you know that scale that they had in the middle of the gym? Well, there was this person, they just finished their workout, you know, they put on their backpack, God knows what was in there, and they stepped on the scale with their backpack on, with their shoes on, and I was like, what does that number mean to you? You know, like, it's gonna be influenced by how many textbooks you have in your bag, whether or not you have a computer in there, whether or not your water bottle's filled or not. Like, why are you weighing yourself at 8 p.m. at night with your backpack on? <laughs> Maybe he was uh, sending a photo to his girlfriend or something. <laughs> uh, on the game train. <laughs> That's a good way to cheat the system. Just um, check on your uni bag. Yep. Laptop, textbooks, yeah. highlighters. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, something else that I wanted to add was I think there is a lot of hang up about the psychological impact of the scale. And it is important to look at it objectively and so for example because it is such an important measure of body composition and anyone who is tracking body composition should be using a scale so let's say you are trying to lose weight if you have a downwards trend in your body weight for month for a month then guess what you've most likely lost fat mass if you're still training relatively hard and the same goes for the opposite if you're gaining weight over the long run and your goal is to increase your muscle mass. So if you're training hard, you're improving yourself in the gym and you're gaining weight, then guess what? The scale is gonna go up, especially if you're eating in an energy surplus and you're gonna be putting on muscle. So it's not really rocket science and you just need to identify why there are those gonna be those daily changes in the scale. So for example, like I said before, did you drink more water? Did you uh, have less carbohydrates? Did you go to the toilet more or less? So really just look at it as if it's, I guess, a really simple puzzle and not really something to get worried about. Yeah, it's absolutely nothing to fear, you know, and when you are aiming to change your body composition, scale weight can be a really freaking cool tool to compare, you know, over the weeks, over the months, over the years, because as you're changing your body composition, for example, you know, you could potentially, let's say you started off at a certain weight, you did a cut, and then, you know, you did a bulk back up and you put on some more muscle mass and you actually ended up at the same weight at which you initially started. But coinciding that scale weight with progress photos, with skin folds, with gym performance, you can compare your progress photos, right? And you can compare your scale weight and say, holy crap, look, in both of these photos, I weigh 65 kilograms, but I look completely different. So 
that's one way to uh, use scale weight to your advantage and actually show yourself that, hey, I'm actually putting on some decent muscle. Yeah, definitely. And it's so important just to yeah be consistent with how you weigh yourself and trying to use the same scales and stuff as well. Yeah, try and even buy the same brand from Kmart. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Kmart's always a good place to go. Don't go to Meyer. Don't spend like 200 bucks on a scale. <laughs> yeah, it's not necessary. But whatever you do, would recommend an electronic one because those ones with like the plastic dials that you have to calibrate yourself. Oh God, talk about inaccuracies there. Whew. Okay, so we're going to move on to this next question. So this says, if you go over your macros one day, can you borrow them and eat less the next day? So technically, yes, you can, but it's not going to be optimal, of course. And it will, the optimality will depend on probably what your goal is. So whether you're trying to lose body fat or trying to gain muscle mass. So let's, and it also depends, like, is it a training day that day or a rest day the next day? So let's say it's a training day and your goal is to lose weight and you borrow more calories from the next day, which is a rest day. So in that situation, it's probably not going to be that detrimental because you're training that day, you're adding more fuel to that day in order to train and you're resting the next day. So you don't have any performance goals in order to hit. Sure, your recovery might be a little bit diminished that next day, but it's not really a big deal. And the other scenario is more um, the opposite. So if it's a rest day and you add more food to that rest day and then you take away food from the training day. So that's not going to be as optimal, of course, because you're depriving yourself of energy for that training day. Mm -hmm. And I think it really matters about the magnitude as well. Like, did you go five grams over your carbohydrate targets one day and you want to take those five grams away from the next day? Like, forget it. It's gone. I would say just try to hit your numbers the same. But for example, if you were to go out on the weekend and you were to go substantially over your calories, so let's say that you ate in a surplus of 1,500 calories, that might be a different story, you know? You could potentially think about eating a little bit less the next day, but at the same time, it's gonna highly depend on your goals, it's gonna depend on your situation, how much food you have to uh, play around with to begin with. So. I would say if you were in that situation and you were still eating a, you know, a pretty good amount of food, but you just really, really overate one day, the next day I would still focus on hitting your protein targets and uh, I would probably maybe just bring fats and carbohydrates down a little bit to reduce total daily energy and just really just focus on getting in those calories from a lot of fruits and vegetables. But in saying that and making that recommendation, it's also gonna be very, very individual because that can be a slippery slope to go down with um, psychology-wise because it's, it's gonna be a bad habit. You know, you don't want to be taking macros from certain days and adding them to other days, you know, on a regular basis because, uh, yeah, it's, it's not going to be a very healthy way to look at your diet as a whole. Like, oh my God, if I, quote-unquote binge today then it's okay to eat next to nothing tomorrow you know I'll just make up for it so yeah I, I don't know if it really depends on the situation you're gonna have to have a good conversation with your coach or just make a responsible decision by yourself yeah I think it really will depend on the individual uh, for me personally like their degree of food focus so 
if you're someone who is in their off season, again, I'm relating it to a physique athlete, but if you're, if they're in their off season, they're really not that food focused. And the scenario is that, oh, wow, I didn't eat all my food today then would they add more food to the next day? So, and because they're not really that food focused, it doesn't really matter to them. The opposing scenario is if they're coming out of a comp prep or something similar, or they're just very food focused in general, and then, oh, they overate considerably one day and they want to deprive themselves the next day, which is basically a binge and restrict cycle. So although the scenario can happen to more than one person, it depends on that individual and how they deal with it because there's a difference between being strategic and yeah, going down that slippery slope of disordered eating. Mm-hmm. Most of the time, to be honest, when this has happened with my clients, maybe if they go over their macros one day, you know, just get right back on track the next day. Like in the grand scheme of things. What would you do personally? If I was to weigh overeat one day? Or just overeat in general, like whether Again, by 100 calories or 600 Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I guess it would depend on whether or not I was in a dieting phase or if I was in a maintenance phase or if I was trying to gain weight. So I guess, what would you say? Should I relate it to if I'm in a dieting phase now? Yeah, do it under your current circumstance. If If it was over only 100 calories, I would say, okay, well, I know that I'm in over a 100 calorie deficit per day. So if that were to happen be honest i'd probably just go back to the exact same macros the next day because like 100 calories here there i don't think that's going to make much of a difference 600 calories i'm probably not in a 600 calorie deficit per day i wouldn't imagine maybe i'm only just in a 600 calorie deficit per day that's a tricky one to be honest uh i probably wouldn't take 600 calories away from the next day i might split that up across the next few days so for example if I had like another three days, I might take 200 calories away from each day, equally from probably fats and carbohydrates and keep protein the same. So try to do a little bit of math there, but I promise all the listeners in this comp prep, I am hitting my macros. So (laughs) you won't see any of that from me. (laughs) Yeah, let's hope not. Well, you know, you see me every day, you see me weighing all my food, but what would you do? Like if you ate a thousand extra calories on Christmas day, what would you do the next day? I've always been the sort of person who like gets straight back, not in terms of eating the same amount the next day, but reducing the, uh, the amount I eat the next day quite considerably because I sort of have that mindset where I want to get back on track correctly as soon as possible. So if I'm in a deficit, then if I eat a thousand calories over, I'll eat a thousand calories less the next day. And that allows me to uh, get right back on track to my usual macros the day after. But you're a little bit of a special case because your calories are so high, regardless of whether you know you are gaining or whether you're dieting. Like for example, what would you say, like if it was a thousand calories you overate, but your basic metabolic rate wasn't as high as it is, um, would you still reduce it by a whole thousand calories the next day? Yes, I probably would. Damn, man. <laughs> and I have done that before. Hungry boy. Where would you take them from? Uh, well, I, I would hope that my carbs would at least be 250. So mm. that's already quite easily done. And especially I could lower fats to 0.3 grams yeah. per kilo of body weight. So So wait, if your carbs are 250, you wouldn't eat a single carb all day? Well, that's not what I'm saying. I could lower my fats. <laughs> but anyway, we're speaking. You heard it here the first, question was yo. Directed at me. Jack's going keto. <laughs> 
<laughs> oh man okay that's our answer to that question okay so we'll move on to this next one so this one says how important is nutrient timing if i eat around my training in the morning i'm super hungry but if i leave it a couple hours later around two to three hours after i train i can deal with the hunger way better so this is a good question and again like many others it comes down to the optimality of it so it's not like you're going to lose all your muscle if you don't eat directly after your workout but it doesn't mean that you can make better progress doing something else so for example one of the factors that is important is whether you eat prior to training and a lot of people who do train in early in the morning don't like eating prior to training because it makes them their gi feel a little bit uh, upset and I would say that if you don't eat prior to training or have anything to eat, then it is important to have that meal fairly soon after training, especially the protein aspect. So because we do need to basically spike muscle protein synthesis and carbohydrates, of course, isn't really that important for that aspect. It's going to be more so the essential amino acids, uh, leucine as well. So what I would do in your scenario is probably either have something, just have a pure protein source prior to training, maybe like a protein shake. And then after training, you could probably leave it for that extended period of time and get away with that. But if you're not having anything prior to training and then nothing for two to three hours after, you're, yeah, you're fasting considerably with training in that same window without a spike of MPS. Yeah, you would, you're hormonally, you would be in quite a catabolic state, yeah. Mm. But like Jack said, you're not going to lose all your muscle. Otherwise, you know, there would be bodybuilding rivals around there, you know, like in the gym, stealing each other's post-workout meals and their protein shakes and saying, I'm going to beat you. (laughs) Okay. So yeah, when we're thinking about nutrient timing, you know, a lot of the nutrient timing, you know, recommendations, they generally are applied for elite level athletes, particularly like carbohydrate recommendations. So when we're thinking about, you know, these recommendations of, oh, you need to have a carbohydrate source of at least 60 grams of carbohydrates within, you know, an hour following training so that you can restore muscle glycogen. That's generally for an athlete who is training twice per day and their training sessions are only around four hours apart. So yes, in that case, following a training bout, they would definitely need some carbohydrates, you know, to resynthesize some muscle glycogen so they can train hard in the afternoon. But for your general population client, you know, or someone who is just training once per day, you really do have to look at the entire day as a whole, you know, and like your total daily protein intake, your total daily caloric intake, whether that be from carbohydrates or fat and a mixture of both, you know, is always going to trump the exact time that you consume that food. Not to dismiss that, you know, those things aren't important. We're just saying that they are like actually getting in enough calories and your proper macronutrient split is the most important. So I'd say in this case, yeah, think of your pre-workout meal as your dinner the night before. I'd say make sure that your dinner does have a good amount of carbohydrates. You've got a good protein source in there, a good fat source. And then after your training session, try to have at least a pure protein source, just a protein shake. Or before training. Yeah, or before training, somewhere around that peri-workout window, you know, have some protein. And then later in the day, eat as you please. And, um, 
you should be just fine. I don't think you would notice too much of a difference in body composition if you were doing that. But uh, I don't know. Do you think you would notice too much of a difference if she was just eating like three hours afterwards and she didn't have any protein source around that like 5 a.m. workout? I, I, I think so. I think you would notice a difference. Yeah. Uh, again, it's going to be the placebo effect is going to be probably greater than the mm-hmm. actual physiological effect of doing it. So if, you, if you're really uninclined to do it and you do it, Mm-hmm. then you probably won't notice a difference. If you really, really want to do it and you do it, then you probably will notice a difference. Yeah, so. exactly. Yeah, we're, I guess we're looking at long-term time scales and we would have to have like and uh, some sort of study, you know, where someone lifts weights for five years and they don't have a protein source, you know, for three hours after they train for the first five years. And then for the next five years, you know, they do have a protein source right after they train and then you can compare their gains. But well, that wouldn't even work because that, their gains would slow down. <laughs> I know this study is impossible. So, um, but I'd say from what we know, there's no harm in having like 20 to 30 grams of protein post training. Mm, yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Yep. Let's move on. All right. <laughs> Okay, so this is a personal question asked directly. Very personal for a dietitian. Oh, yes. Uh, So this one says, number one favorite vegetable and fruit. Ooh. (laughs) So this is basically telling you my star sign for a dietitian. (laughs) Are you sure you want to share your secret? (laughs) So my favorite fruit would have to be either uh, blueberries or green apples. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I eat them every day. I know. <laughs> and my favorite vegetable would have to be avocado. Ooh, wait. Av- oh, of course. Wait, aren't avocados a fruit? Well, they're a vegetable in my book. Oh, okay. So you, okay. All right. Well, what? That's the thing though. Like certain vegetables and certain fruits are like vice versa or something. I think it's about whether or not they come from a flowering plant or something. I thought it was, no, I don't know. Let's, yeah. What, I don't what know. about you though? Ooh, um, okay, favorite fruit, I would have to say, I love oranges and I love grapefruits. I just love being able to like peel them into segments. That's probably my favorite fruit. And favorite vegetable, man, that's really tough. Uh, Red onions. No, Jesus Christ. (laughs) That's at the bottom of the list, yo. Uh, Okay, so favorite vegetable, man, I want to say tomatoes, but again, I think some people say that tomatoes are a fruit because they come from a flowering plant, but I put them in my salads with my other vegetables. So I think, what do you think? Are tomatoes a vegetable? I see them as a vegetable. Yeah, I like. What about if, I like if, our book? <laughs> what about people if they um, repost this, they can let us know what they. Yes, think. exactly, guys. Let us know: is a tomato a fruit or a vegetable in your book? But yeah, I love tomatoes. Tomatoes are so good. I can eat them like mm. apples. You know. I've always dislike tomatoes oh well i enjoy them anything except raw i just can't oh, eat them raw i'll eat i'll eat them for you that's true you know whenever jack and i go out to a restaurant i just uh pick the tomatoes off his plate but they're so good man you can make tomatoes well, I like say the same about onions yeah i know we trade tomatoes for onions <laughs> but Dude, like i ate so much onion and compra oh god i'm glad uh we didn't live in the same house then <laughs> But uh, no, tomatoes, you know, you can like eat them raw, put them in a salad, you can make salsa, they make like amazing tomato paste, passata. Tomatoes are very versatile, so um, I, love a, I love a good tomato. 
All right, so move on to another question. And I like this one. It's another personal one. It says, if you weren't bodybuilding, what would you be doing to feed your competitive drive? I'll let you go first this time. Oh, okay. I think it would definitely still be something that is highly active and still has some sort of, you know, strength component. I think that I would love to um, compete in like Spartan races, like as an actual athlete who races in those races. I think that would be so cool. And, uh, you know, during first year uni, I actually did do quite a few of the Spartan races and I actually got first place in one of them in the um, Spartan sprint, which was like a seven kilometer race. And that was just so freaking fun, man. Like, uh, so yeah, I would say something like that. I love I love, you know, being strong. I love getting down and dirty. <laughs> like there is still a part of me that, you know, does want to, you know, break out and run. So um, Spartan races are freaking awesome. So you'd get about a hundred bruises though. Oh yeah, race. I would get bruised, but hey, they'd be covered up by the mud. So it's all good. <laughs> yeah. What would you do? Uh, well, I grew up playing football, soccer and Probably, I do like the team sport aspect, which uh, interestingly is why I like bodybuilding as well, because there's that community sort of feel. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I would be very interested to see what would happen if I applied my nutritional knowledge to, uh, and dedication of what I have for bodybuilding to something like soccer, because like I, I guess I was... I hit puberty a bit early got, I was just a, relied on being a little bit bigger and faster than other people, which, and when I got to like the latter years of high school, that sort of ran out. And then I switched to bodybuilding. <laughs> I would love to see you just trample some dudes on the field, like out of the way. <laughs> but, um, cause yeah, there were these times in school where, because my ideals about nutrition then were very misinformed and I like one time on a Saturday prior to my uh, soccer game, which was, I think, at, like early afternoon, I had this massive breakfast of like pancakes. It was very low fat. It was basically just very floury pancakes. And I remember my performance in that game was like the best it had ever been. Like mm -hmm. I just ran the whole game. And yeah, like back then I didn't know what it was, but obviously now I do. So <laughs> The magic of glucose. <laughs> That's what I would actually love to see. Like, I can guarantee you guys, Jack's carbohydrate intake would be upwards of 1,000 grams per day if he was a soccer player right now. Because mm. what, you you ate 800 grams the other day, didn't you? 850. 850 grams on his leg day. Oh my God. And like, that's just from training legs and just walking to the gym and back. I did 4,000 steps that day. 4,000. Man, you need to cut it back, you know? <laughs> Give those legs a rest. <laughs> oh, my gosh. But, um, yeah, I, I want to see that in the uh, in the repost as well. What do you think Jack's carbohydrate intake would be if he was a soccer player? <laughs> mm. Oh, wow. I wish I knew. Okay, guys, so I think that's going to be our last question for the day. But, you know, as we always finish on, which is one thing that we learned this week, Jack, I'm going to let you start. What's something that you learned this week? So something I learned this week, which is actually from the Flex Success podcast with Gabrielle Frondaro, who's a gut health professional. And we actually had her on our podcast as well, um, right at the beginning. But she sort of, I didn't really learn this, but she sort of opened my eyes to it and made me think about this in a new light. But essentially that 
gut health is different to the microbiome. So you can have a very, and this is the way I see it is that, or an example that I'll give you guys is, let's say you wanna have a really, really good microbiome, but you have IBS. So uh, whole grain carbohydrates and a lot of fruit and vegetables really irritate your GIT and you get diarrhea, you get bloating and stuff like that. So in that case, it would be difficult for you to have a really diverse microbiome and therefore you'd have to prioritize having good gut health over having a quality and diverse microbiome. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that was such an important point that she did bring up, you know, like gut health really does come down to the physiological structure of your gut. So your intestines, you know, and the cells within your intestine, what is the actual health of those? Or is there a disease status present? So yeah, I think that's such a good point that she made because yeah, it, there certainly is crossover, I think, that people you say gut health and the microbiome as mm. if they're just interchangeable. Yeah, there's a lot about the uh, microbiome, but not quite as much about gut health. Yeah. But what did you learn this week? Ooh, okay. I learned something from a podcast as well, but this is actually from the Revive Stronger podcast. So uh, in his most recent episode, he had James Krieger on, and they had this really interesting discussion about how one of James' past comp prep clients, during his comp prep, he would actually wear a weighted vest, which I thought was really interesting. So essentially, as he would continue to lose weight, he would actually add more weight to the weighted vest as if he was still the same body weight. And he would wear that for like 90% of his day, uh, which was really interesting. And Even while he trained. Yeah, even like literally the whole entire day. I think he probably only took it off to maybe shower or something. But um, I thought one, that was a very interesting, you know, protocol that they used. But his client, I believe his name was Eric. I'm not sure what his last name was but he actually had anecdotal reports of he felt the least hungry, the most satiated, the least food focused that he ever had out of any of his comp preps while wearing this weighted vest. And James Krieger was talking about some research that has been done in rodents, but still pretty interesting. Essentially what they do is they diet rodents down, but they actually implant weights into their body so that they're still the same weight while they're in a caloric deficit. And um, it's very interesting because their theory is essentially is that our body weight, like the, the amount of weight that is on our skeletal frame and our bones, it actually influences our osteocytes, which are the cells within our bones. And the theory is that those cells actually communicate with the brain, some sort of com component with the brain that signals back appetite signals. So for example, if you are a heavier body weight, there's more weight bearing down on your bones that will actually signal over to say, hey, I'm pretty heavy right now, you know, I don't need to eat as much food. So it's still a very new emerging area of research and they don't know too much about it, but I thought the entire thing was very, very interesting about how our bone cells can pretty much connect with our brain and influence so how much our appetite. Did he add? I'm not sure. Like, so it wasn't proportionate to how much he lost? No, it's more about it's more about the whole idea of it about how if you are a heavier person, then technically your appetite should be lowered because your body wants to be 
at a lower body weight, you know, to be healthy. But at the same time, we know that there's a hell of a lot of things that drive hunger, not to mention our hunger hormones, leptin and ghrelin. But uh, I did think this was really interesting that, hey, maybe our bone cells have a part to play in whether or not we want that extra piece of chocolate cake. So you never know, research is always emerging and it's uh, super interesting. Okay, so you wanna wrap this up? Yep, that's it for today, guys. Thank you very much for listening. Uh, We'll see you next time. But if you did enjoy the episode, please remember to share it on your social media. Tag myself, tag Tierra, tag the Bodybuilding Dietitians. And we'll see you next time. See you later.